Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. This week is an unprecedented episode of Power Hour. Now, every week I try to say that it's special because I try to make it special, or every week that we do it, I should say, because we haven't been doing it weekly for a while. Anyway, but this episode is unprecedented. That is a fact because it is the first Power Hour that will be introducing a new podcast in addition to Power Hour. Now, this podcast will actually come out much more frequently than Power Hour, although Power Hour will still come out. Uh, And it's a podcast on a subject that underlies Power Hour but applies to many subjects beyond energy, and that is the idea of human flourishing. Now, my guest this week is my partner in the new podcast and also a great mentor of mine over the last year. His name is Dan Sullivan. He's the founder and president of the entrepreneur training company, The Strategic Coach. And as that name would suggest, he's an incredibly strategic thinker who helps entrepreneurs take their ideas and build fast-growing businesses out of them. And at the same time, and I think related, he's also an extremely philosophical person. When he read The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels two years ago, he immediately took interest in my human flourishing-based framework for thinking about issues, and he, he understood that was the fundamental. It wasn't really a book about energy. It was a book about how to think about any important moral issue. And when we met in person, he was particularly interested uh, when he found out that I disseminate my ideas as an entrepreneur via a for-profit business rather than a non-profit charity. And so over the last year, he's given me a lot of ideas on how to take my ideas to a wider audience, how to really grow the business, grow a movement. And that's what we'll be talking about today, what I call the Human Flourishing Project and the podcast, which is called the Human Flourishing Podcast. So uh, I'm really excited for you to get a sense of Dan Sullivan, to get a sense of our conversations. And so I hope you enjoy it on the other side. Now, just one thing, which I don't mention during the interview, I also mention this at the end, but if you want to get on the mailing list for the new podcast, because the new website isn't up yet, just go to humanflourishingmovement.com, humanflourishingmovement.com, and sign up there and then that'll make sure you're you're on the list. If you're on our regular list too at industrialprogress.com, uh, if you sign up there, you'll also get notifications, but this will be a new list as well. So for sure, get on both. Also, uh, if you want to check it out in advance, go to strategiccoach.com. If you're an entrepreneur, I highly recommend the program, depending on how successful you are. If, if you're at a higher level, uh, the 10X program that he has is, is absolutely amazing. Uh, we're not going to talk much about entrepreneurship today. We will in in the future podcast at a future time. Uh, but I think you'll see he's a really, really fun person to talk to, a uh, really, really fun mind to work with. All right. Once again, I'll be back with Dan Sullivan. Power Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Dan Sullivan, founder of Strategic Coach. Dan, welcome to Power Hour. Great pleasure, Alex. I've listened to the hour 
many times, and uh, it's neat to actually be a guest. Uh, well, it's exciting to have you be a guest. Uh, I think many of our listeners have heard the interviews that I've done with you and Joe Polish on 10X Talks, but I know that many of them uh, are not familiar with you. I, I gave a whole elaborate introduction in the intro. Where I thought I'd start in our relationship is how I first got introduced to you in a significant way. Now, I had heard of you before, and I had heard of some of your concepts that we'll go into as part of Strategic Coach, but I had never really explored them to what I later found out was the amount that they deserved exploration. But I got this email, or maybe it was a, a text. Excuse my voice, everyone. I've, I've been sick, which is ironic because we're going to be talking about human flourishing, but at least mm -hmm. I'm alive and I'm 36. So in a <laughs> sense, that's a testament to a society of human flourishing. Anyway, I got <clears throat> a... Um, a video message from Joe Polish, whom I didn't know, but a friend of mine, Chad Morris, had sent him a copy of the recently released Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And Joe Polish said, hey, Dan Sullivan just gave out 600 copies of your book to his top clients. And I thought, well, this is really cool. And it's really fascinating that the person who's giving 600 copies away is not someone from the oil industry. And at that point, nobody mm -hmm. had bought even hundreds of copies. Subsequently, fortunately, mm -hmm. that's changed. But it was a coach of, of entrepreneurs. And, and I, I thought, okay, well, this guy, Dan Sullivan, obviously has good judgment. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but I was wondering, like, what, what prompted him to do this? And this is a group of entrepreneurs he's giving it to, and it's a controversial topic. Might he lose some standing with them? So what was going on in your mind on the other side of that? Why, why were you giving 600 copies of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels to a group of millionaire entrepreneurs? Yeah, well, you know, I've, um, <clears throat> first of all, I think over the years, I've attracted, Alex, um, a group of entrepreneurs who tend not to go with the general narrative, uh, you know, and when I say the general narrative, everything, everybody believes that things are going this way, and most of these entrepreneurs have become quite successful by being contrarian within their own marketplace and uh, within their own industries. So um, giving a book that is essentially a contrarian, uh, you know, message regarding the energy, regarding the environment, uh, just seemed to me right up their alley. And uh, every quarter I buy 600 copies of something to give them out. And uh, but there, I have to tell you, you know, I've been doing this for about five years with this particular audience. And the feedback from your book was the greatest by at least two times of any previous book. And there's been some, you know, really bestseller books that have gone and people said, yeah, I found it interesting. But this one, they found kind of uh, mind shifting because they had never gone to the depth that you did in the, uh, the moral case for fossil fuels and saw everything we're talking about in the energy environment, let's say that's the narrative, that it was a moral issue and that came down to what was your moral position uh, just regarding the human race. And I just found that probably the most original idea in this entire discussion that I've seen in the last 25 years. So I, I just wanted to share it. And, you know, I really couldn't care less with whether people agree with me or not agree with me, but they certainly are in no confusion about where I stand on anything. Yeah, well, that, that's something I've seen repeated over and over subsequently. And, it, it, and I've heard stories of you 
engaging with many famous and prominent people and telling them they're full of it. And uh, it's it's I have a reputation of doing of doing the same, but you know I haven't I don't have a huge business that could theoretically be negatively impacted. But as you indicate, I think a lot of the appeal of your business is is the kind of mindset the independent mindset that you have that that has no uh, BS tolerated. So then the next stage. So so we then uh, I want to. This is going to culminate in, in an idea that Dan has been instrumental in helping me develop and that he will continue to be instrumental in helping me develop. We're going to announce, among other things, a, a new podcast that we hope to do. Uh, but to take the next step, so um, some months later, you were in Southern California, where I lived at the time, and uh, you and, and your wife, Babs, who co-runs a Strategic Coach uh, with you, uh, I got to meet both of you in person. And you started indicating to me that you thought there was a lot of potential to the central idea of the moral case for fossil fuels, which is this idea of human flourishing as the standard of mm -hmm. value. The idea that in everything in life, there's some ultimate value by which we're measuring whether we know mm -hmm. it or not, whether our actions are right or wrong, and that we have to deliberately choose that, that our choice should be human flourishing and that we, we should reject wrong standards like minimizing our impact and we should and we should reject not thinking about the issue otherwise we'll default uh to just something reactive um mm -hmm. what was your thought at the time about why this was important but also why this why i might not be uh fully appreciate the significance of this well uh it's a little easier uh i think sometimes for someone from the outside to see um, the significance of another person's idea simply because they, they don't have the history of developing the idea and the other, they're just hitting they're just getting the idea full full bore you know the idea is just popping out in a conversation which it did with us and uh, I've been thinking about you know what is the organizing idea for society because um, we've reached a point in the 21st century where it's it's no longer based on a dominant religion. There's there's major religions, but, but you know a lot of societies in the past have been religious based, and then you had various politically based systems. But there's no overall dominant organizing principle for human affairs. And the closest you would get would be uh, sort of generally accepted trade agreements and how you know, um, trade of products and services around the planet would be, and there are certain, you know, military treaties and that. But there isn't a fundamental um, value basis for human affairs during the 21st century. And there's a lot of confusion around this. And, um, and you know, being uh, brought up in the States, I live in Canada and I have for 45 years, but... Uh, America is kind of like a religion, so you lo you look at it kind of differently. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a golden period of American history right after the Second World War when America was the, you know, the big dog on the planet for a lot of reasons. And, uh, and you know, I've always had a feeling that America was essentially a moral position 
you know, that the, the basis for America is really a belief. Uh, they have a certain kind of belief on human individuals. And that always attracted me. And living in another country that doesn't have it to the same degree. And we have a third country that we deal with, which is the U.K., and they still don't have it in the same degree that the Americans did. I've been looking for somebody who would come up and said, this is really the thought that sorts out everything. If you can look at any aspect of human affairs, regardless of what activity you're talking about, this human flourishing will be the, uh, you know, the touch plate. You would actually say, well, how does it relate to human flourishing? Is it for it or is it against it? Does it believe in it? Does it not believe in it? And I just found it very clarifying. And then getting to know you, Alex, I found you one of the clearest thinkers I've ever met in my life. And I think part of the reason why you're such a clear thinking is that you actually established the basis for what the clarity of your thinking was going to be. And I think this was a long process. And I think you've probably been at it probably quite a bit longer than you would give the starting point. But I think you have a passion for operating from first principles. And that depending on what your first principles are, then your the, the, your ongoing thinking is either really solid or it's really flawed. And uh, I just was immediately attracted. I, I said, I think he's really nailed something that would be universally useful here. And that, that was my attraction to, you know, the first time you brought it up. And I think I've been the biggest booster of the idea ever since, <laughs> you know, I said, go for it, go for it, go for it. I think, you, you know, I think you got a lifetime winner here. Yeah, I mean, that, that was really exciting to experience that enthusiasm. But I think even even when I knew that and, and that you had a, a similar view that I did about the the integrating power of human flourishing. And really, you know, my belief is, you know, I, I think of the mission as human flourishing should be the world's guiding principle. Yeah. And that's that's what I ultimately mm -hmm. think of the mission of the what I call the human flourishing project. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I call it right now. Um, but then your so one really interesting thing about you and notice we haven't discussed entrepreneurship yet, which is mm -hmm. which is interesting. And I think uh, indicates one of the reasons why we get along very well together, because I'm a professional like idea philosophy person who happens to run a for profit business, which is very rare that sells the ideas. It's very, very rare. And you're a professional business, uh, you know, theorist, but, you know, you teach people how to make money, how to enjoy their lives more in business. And yet you obviously have this extreme interest in philosophical ideas. And if, you know, the more we talk, the more I learn about just how much you've read and in many subjects you've read much more uh, than I have. Uh, so how did you see this as a business? Because you could imagine somebody seeing this as, oh, this is a good philosophy this would be a good thing to fund, you know, a nonprofit with. But but you from the beginning have seen this as a as a business thing. So could you talk mm -hmm. about that? Well, you know, I'm in the in the business of spotting great other businesses. So, you know, like, um, um, you know, I've got a phrase in strategic coach, your your eyes only see and your ears only hear what your brain is looking for. And so over the 40-some years, actually, I started this coaching uh, approach to the marketplace in the 1974. 
And uh, over the years, I've been sorting out businesses that are okay, businesses that are somewhat successful, from businesses that just have something to begin with that's extraordinary, that's unique, and is almost like infinitely expandable. And so this is where all my antennae are out every time I'm in the marketplace when I'm at conferences. I said, who's got the idea here? that they could stay with, and I have a standard, could they stay with it for 25 years? And it would be exciting and motivating for them to stick with it for 25 years. But out of their excitement and their motivation for their own idea, it would uh, it would be a selling idea in the marketplace. In other words, that other people, when they're exposed to the idea, they would also be excited and motivated to utilize it um, you know, in specific ways to help them. And I have to tell you, you know, the moment that those two words came out of your mouth, I said, bingo, we got a live one here. And you have to understand, I've tested out thousands of ideas over, over, over the years. So it's not like, uh, you know, that I haven't given a great deal of thought to how you would sort out whether an idea was great or the idea was great. And right off the bat, the moment I heard your idea, I said, well, OK, we've got a big one here. And and then, you know, all the ways that I help people actually take an idea and then actually build a company around it and how they expand the company. And then, you know, how the the influence of the company all for pay, by the way, that I have to tell you, if you had told me in the first conversation that you ran a nonprofit, I wouldn't have been interested at all. Really? The, the winning argument for me is that you, you had a profit-making company, which means that you were really willing to subject yourself to the pricing mechanism of the marketplace, which I think is a real reality point. A lot of um, so-called great idea people depend upon government tax breaks and subsidies to get their ideas out there, but you didn't. You just you were just pure in the marketplace. I'm just going to go into the mar marketplace for ideas, and I'm going to sell this. You know, I'm going to sell my thinking as a viable product. That if other people adapted this, this would be useful to them in ways that they can't even imagine right now. And um, I was really struck by that because I have never really come across um, a profit-making philosopher before. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty rare. The, the issue of measuring impact is really fascinating, but, uh, and, and when I started Center for Industrial Progress, I wasn't sure exactly, I had this idea of a for-profit think tank. I wasn't sure whether it was the right idea or whether it was doable. But once I got the idea even of having a sales target, like that you have to make this much money this month selling your idea so you can't you can't compromise the ideas otherwise the experiment is ruined mm -hmm. but but figuring out okay what's really going to be valuable to people that there was such a discipline in that and there was such a discovery in that about how to how to position it and package it so it was actually valuable to individuals mm -hmm. as against something they said they thought they liked versus something they would pay for i, I just love that process and i find it hard to explain to other people who are in the space, but in the nonprofit part of the space, because they'll say, well, why don't you just raise, they'll say like, well, look, you have all these people who like you, why don't you raise a hundred million dollars and just have them fund something? 
And my thought is, I don't even know what to do with $100 million. Like I, I need to, the thing I need to, the hard part is to figure out how to create the value so people will buy it. So if I make $100 million, then I've solved that. But if I take $100 million, I haven't necessarily solved anything. Yeah, and you know, one of the big things I've noticed over the years, because I'm not a big proponent of charitable foundations, uh, you know, and, um, uh, you know, I think that they're, um, they have, people who form these organizations have many different kind of motives that are behind the scene motives besides the purported mission of what they're what they're trying to do and uh, i find that the whole nonprofit world and i i have three long podcasts with uh, joe polish on this where i am adamantly against the whole notion of social entrepreneurism you know and it's used a lot it's one of those fashionable garbs but if you put the word social in front of any other English word, you immediately take the meaning of that word away. And it becomes the opposite. It becomes the opposite. And so uh, I have to tell you the, you know, the, the, the statement before you got to human flourishing in our conversation that won my heart is that you were doing this uh, in a normal marketplace way where you were putting yourself out there and said, I believe that the, ideas that I have, and especially this one central idea, it's so valuable that I'm willing to have the marketplace judge me on this, and I will accept their verdict, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. And very few people who are philosophically inclined have the guts to do that. That's why they want tenure at universities. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, uh, <laughs> that was not, never something that appealed to me for for infinite no. reasons. Um, but before you, I remember you told me that when you read the moral case for fossil fuels, this mm -hmm. this issue of human flourishing hit on you pretty quickly, yeah. and thus you had a sense. And, and do you think in entrepreneurial terms? So you, I assume you thought it had entrepreneurial potential even before you knew I was an entrepreneur. Is, would that be accurate? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I read a little bit of the bio, and uh, it kind of indicated to me that you were in, you know, you were in control of your own ship. So, but I didn't know the, you know, I didn't know the inside scoop on that. Uh, but uh, I, I'll tell you what had hit me because um, you so clearly delineate um, what the issue is. You either believe that human beings are, uh, you know, the purpose of life you know, that humanity is the purpose of human life, or you believe in the opposite, uh, you know, and and when I say you believe in the opposite, if you don't believe that humanity is the center of things, then uh, you'll believe almost any other explanation, not that there's one opposing, almost everything will be opposing to that, but after a very short time, if you don't believe humanity is the purpose, then you start believing that humanity is the problem, you know, and, and all, all the worst things uh, in the world can happen when people start seeing human beings as the problem, okay? Human beings, they're not the solution, the human, human beings are the reason, <laughs> you know, and it's the flourishing of human beings that's the um, measurement of progress uh, in humanity. So it was so clear cut to me because uh, it seemed to me to be at the center of things 
and I couldn't see any center that was deeper, you know. And you know, and I I've been around philosophy for 40, 45, 45 years. You know, I'm all the books of philosophy in the Western world. I've read them, and uh, you know, and I've discussed uh, a lot of them. And I said this is a terrific first principle starting point uh, for where we go forward from now. So you got all of human history up until now. Let's just adopt human flourishing as the guideline now, and we'll mostly get everything right. I want to give people a, a little bit of a sense of what it's like to have you as an advisor or, or mentor. And also, I want to hear some new thoughts from you. Uh, so what what advice did you and, and do you start giving me on you know, expanding this idea, because this is one thing that you've done an amazing job at and that might is one of your great abilities is to help people take these ideas and nurture them and to expand them. And, and people need to keep in mind the context of a right now, human flourishing in my work isn't isn't known all over the world. It's not like I'm I'm not Malcolm Gladwell or, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. And when I met you, it was even less, you know, it's considerably less known. So that's good. There's been progress since since then. Um, how do you see, but, but you have this idea, well, this could be a universal idea, and this could be a much bigger business. How do you help somebody like me? And how have you helped me? How do you envision helping me or, or giving me advice to, to take the idea to its full potential? Because for me, that's, that's the exciting thing. I feel like, okay, this idea, if, if only people got it and applied it, it would be amazing for them. And, and the world would be much more amazing. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm always interested in how do I do that? And I feel like if I don't figure that out, I haven't done justice to the idea. And I've really screwed over a lot of people indirectly by not mm -hmm. giving them the value of the idea. Well, uh, the first thing is that I think that you've probably been creating this idea for a long time and uh, not necessarily with the name, but you were in the area where, you know, you had certain visions and you had certain resonance of ideas that ultimately you found two words that sort of, um, you know, name the game that you were playing. And I'm a big one on naming things, you know, that I believe that, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the biblical version of the Genesis, you know, the first skill that God gives to Adam is the um, the ability to name all the animals and the plants. And I think naming is a very, very crucial part of how humans actually uh, create and develop their own reality going forward. We, we, you know, we can't really think about anything until we have a name for it. So uh, by naming it, uh, you have um, created a whole intellectual uh, very fertile intellectual starting point for a lot of people to say, hey, this human flourishing, let's go back and look at this, you know, uh, let's go back and look at uh, how do we judge politics, for example, because we're just coming out of a very, very, uh, for, for my, the most interesting presidential um, year um, since I started, and I started following it in 1952. 1952 was my first that was Eisenhower, and uh, you know, and I, I've followed every single presidential, and this was by far the most interesting, uh, certainly for the character who emerged out of it, who I think is uh, kind of a, 
you know, once in a century kind of uh, skill set. He's got uh, just un- some unbelievable skills. But the other thing, just the issues at stake, because um, and there's two things that I think uh, and I'm going to introduce them as negative factors in relationship to human flourishing. And one of them is the um, uh, technological world, which is there are very powerful and wealthy people who are sort of floating an idea, why do we need human beings anyway, because we can create artificial intelligence in robot form. And, you know, at a certain point, the robots with artificial intelligence are going to make humans, um, you know, um, obsolete, and we, we won't reproduce anymore. So that's one part. And the other one is the environmental movement, the really negative environmental movement, which sees nature as a separate, much more pristine reality. And human beings are almost like a virus, a negative virus, and that if we could just rid the world of human beings, then nature would be perfect. And, uh, you know, my suggestion to them is that they volunteer by committing suicide on the spot to start the process, but they never, they're never open to practical ideas like that. But anyway, um, so I see two big dominant thought forms in the world, and I think, quite frankly, it's causing uh, uh, severe danger to a lot of uh, marvelous human development that's been developing over thousands of years, and it's at stake right now. And uh, so I, I was very, very concerned about that. But my, my sense is that... Um, uh, you don't know the uh, the other thing that I would say that it's easier from someone from the outside to see the significance of an idea because they haven't lived with the idea. They're they're getting it at the result of a lot of development. I would say the other thing is that I don't think that there's anyone else on the planet who could have come up with the idea except you and the way that you personally developed yourself, uh, probably going back to your teens. Um, you know, which is 20 years ago or whenever it was. But I think that you've been on this path to develop this particular idea. So I don't see it as something that just happened. I'm kind of sensing that there's a long genesis uh, to this to this idea and that it um, it's the name that sums up an enormous amount of stuff that you've thought about and worked out in your own mind before you got here. And Quite frankly, and every other entrepreneur who's got really great ideas, I mean, I'm dealing with game-changing ideas now. I'm in my 43rd year of coaching, and frankly, almost everybody I'm dealing with seriously right now has an idea that would change some kind of game, you know, either a local market game or an industry-wide game, or it would seriously affect major social and uh, political uh, concepts. So I'm just interested in the game-changer that changes the game in positive directions, and you just seem to have the granddaddy, the granddaddy of them all, that every other idea I'm working with right now would fit under your ideas. So you have the mother of all game-changing ideas. So how do, I, how do I take it to the next level? Yeah, well, one is take it seriously. Yeah, you know what I'm... Uh, I always tell people, you know, the biggest problem that I have is that I take you more seriously than you do. Uh, you know, then then you take yourself seriously. And uh, once I 
you know, once I make a determination personally that this person is worth betting on and this idea is worth betting, then it's a total, I have a total buy-in. Because I've tested the market, you know, I've had, I've done an enormous amount of trial and error. And I think that my role is really, really crucial for someone who is doing something significantly different because usually it's a lonely role and there there's no outside reinforcement there's no outside um you know just constant positive encouragement to develop the idea and i think it's my unique ability that i just do that naturally is it's not something i work at it's something that this is just this is just my unique ability you know that um um you got Dan Sullivan on your side. You can forget about a lot of other things you might need. <laughs> that, that, and I'm I'm simply telling you, I'm just accessing, you know, probably 40 years of seeing the impact of when I get interested in someone else's idea. So how does tell? Can you tell us from experience how that how that works out? And I, I think this is important. Uh, I mean, we're talking about human flourishing and my project and our work yeah. together, but people should understand this just so they can understand what you've done with people. Yeah, well, I came up with, uh, you know, my own kind of neat idea. And I don't think you're, uh, yours, it's it's fairness to call your idea a neat idea. I think it's a profound idea. Uh, but my neat idea was that um, human beings had three great, thinking abilities. So if you look at how the brain operates, there's three thinking abilities that people have. And for most people, they only develop two of them. And the first one is that they're able to visualize in the future a result for themselves that's bigger and better than anything they have right now. And we constantly do this. And uh, and it's very powerful. It's built into the human brain. Um, it's very clear to me that none of the other species have this, um, uh, uh, you know, except in maybe rudimentary form that it might be a 24 hour thing or it might be an eight hour thing. But humans can see years ahead. They can visualize realities years ahead and they can intellectually engage with what they're seeing. In other words, they can really use their thinking powers to actually engage with that future result. But then they also have the ability to um, uh, uh, to actually commit themselves emotionally to go through whatever changes are necessary to get that future result. And that's a phenomenal ability, you know, and, you know, uh, uh, corpuses are smart, but I don't see them, you know, when uh, they're in our shows, we're not in their show. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so, so, you know, I mean, who's collecting, who's collecting the ticket money, money that tells you who the superior species is. So anyway, uh, and then the second thing we have is this negative ability to see all the immediate reasons why you can't get to that future goal. So most people have a really well-developed ability that the moment they would imagine a future goal, immediately their negative comes into play. And there's nothing false about this negative, but you're not, most people don't really, really interpret what the negativity means. It means that your brain right now is kind of giving you an accurate assessment of your present capability to actually pull off that future vision, and it's deficient. 
because it's gotten you to where you are, but it's not going to get you to that other place. And for most people, that's a stopping point in their life. And a lot of people actually turn off their ability to visualize into the future because they hate that negative feeling that comes up that it's not possible. And they will actually, you know, drug themselves or, you know, just, uh, you know, shut down their visualizing uh, capability in the future because that immediately seeing the negative, why they don't have the ability to do that is just too painful. And they don't want to have that painful feeling. But the third ability, and this is, uh, you're, you, these are the entrepreneurs and people who are creative in other areas. They know that the obstacle to the vision is just the raw material for getting there. They have to take the negative obstacle and they have to transform it into a decision, a commitment, uh, communication, action, and then uh, beyond that, teamwork with other people. And it's only by telling the truth about the obstacles that they can actually get to the vision because the obstacles are actually pointing out where you have to grow, where you have to improve. So I came up with this idea in the mid-70s, and I played with it in rough form, just talking with, I had clients and customers, and uh, and then I started to visualize it, and I'm a trained artist. I was in the advertising industry, so, you know, I, I can write crisp copy, and, you know, I can do, you know, really good diagrams. And uh, in 1982, one afternoon, I just nailed the whole diagram. I'd been, I think I'd been doing bits and parts of a diagram. It was called the strategy circle. And it was a knockout. And this idea was a 10 times idea. And so I, I created this diagram and I would put people's names on the diagram. And I said, this is what we're going to go through together. And, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about uh, human flourishing. And it, it's a it's a strategy circle uh, topic. You know, you would say, you know, um, three years for, from now or even a year from now, this is where I'm going to be with human flourishing. And you specifically put some measurements out there that are either going to be true or not true. It has to be measurable. And then you start looking at all the present obstacles and you say, okay, over the next year, I've got to overcome these obstacles. And if you're, uh, you know, if you're working on it on a daily basis and moving forward a year from now, the reality that you visualize will be true. And I've been doing this for, you know, certainly for 30, 30 years, you know, and it works every time if people will stick to the process. So, um, uh, and they won't stick with it if it's not a good idea because the marketplace will reject them. You know, it's not a good enough idea that people will write a check for it. And that, see, the pricing mechanism of the marketplace uh, is our one practical touch point. Things are worth what people. Things are exactly worth within human affairs what someone will write a check for. Yes. Uh, so because we're going to be doing uh, future podcasts, I, I want to just make a point. I want to flag this issue of the strategy circle, but also there's a broader issue of all, all these very different and very useful thinking tools that you've developed for yeah. entrepreneurs, many of which apply, I think, to everyone, because we're going to be discussing that on a, on a future yeah. podcast. I just want to highlight that in people's minds though, that, that this, what he's talking about, the strategy circle and there are other ones like called an impact filter and a positive focus. There's something very valuable 
to this. And I want to use that to segue into the idea of a uh, podcast, which mm-hmm. was another one interesting kind of interaction I have with you, which is is rare among my interactions with people, is that you'll say something whenever one of the best compliments I ever got from one of still one of my best friends was she said, your favorite word is wait when you're listening. So when somebody says something and I don't understand something on media, I'll say, wait, da, 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 da. So when I process, I take in every word. And, and if I don't understand something, I'm not continuing with it unless I'm bored. And then I'll, I'll just excuse myself. But, and so I can usually get as a result of that, exactly what the person is saying. And I usually have the context I have enough context to see pretty quickly, is this a good idea or is this a bad idea? But on several occasions, we've had discussions where you've brought up an idea and I felt like I understood the idea to the best of my ability at the time, but then I later realized I didn't have the context to properly value the idea. And this has happened several times. It's a very fun kind of thing to happen. And now that I know there's a tendency, so even human flourishing as something to pursue wholesale, you know, that took me a year to to see and I would keep thinking about it but it it wasn't that I'm resist I'm not resistant to things at all it's just if I don't see them I don't see them uh and a couple of weeks ago we were having a call and you had this idea of a, doing a podcast together and I saw I saw the initial version of it I said yeah there's something right about this something wrong about it but it didn't excite me in a huge way and then 2 hours later I realized oh this could be exciting so I want to tell people what excites me about it but first what caused you to want to do a podcast together? Well, um, again, uh, going back to uh, a framework that's one of my frameworks for game uh, game changers that you don't have a game changing idea unless you can answer this question. Uh, I could stay with this idea for 25 years and every day I would be more fascinated and motivated with what I'm doing, and very few people have an idea like that that they could uh, stick with. So it's one of my, uh, you know, uh, what I would say gateway tests for people whether they they really have an idea idea that uh, could really change things. Because I can guarantee you, in this day and age where people have, you know, 60 second attention spans and five minute attention spans and seldom more than a 24 hour attention span. Somebody who can stick with something for 25 years dominates the world. You know, it's the it's the long, consistent thinkers that, um, you know, that really rule the world because very few people have enough energy reward from their ideas that they could actually stick with them for long enough. Okay. And uh, so when I responded to your idea, I said that, that he could stick with that for 25 years. I said I would be interested in asking him questions about it for 25 years. Okay, so that's one of my real tests, you know, and people don't think in terms of 25 years, you know, I mean, um, but um, I have a story, which is for a later podcast, but I actually did something every day for 25 years consciously, just to prove that I could do it. And when I got to the end of it, I says, I've got a new ability that very few people have on the planet, I can stick with something for 25 years, you know, and it's just that I reminded myself every day for 25 years that I was doing this activity. And it's really 
I'm kind of muscle bound in that area, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I'm like somebody off Venice Beach, you know, in terms of biceps, <laughs> biceps. Except it's this, uh, it's this time sense that I have. It has a lot of muscle behind it. So, having developed this for myself, I'm looking for other people who have ideas that they would get continually rewarded for doing it over a long period of time. And you have one, you know, I, I can't see you being anything but more fascinated and motivated by this idea as you go along, because it serves so many different purposes that you have in life. And the other, the other aspect about it is, uh, as far as my own reward here, is I don't have anyone like you in my life. You know, I mean, I, I've got lots of really interesting thinkers, but they're particular area thinkers. You know, like Peter Diamandis, I really love seeing how his brain recognizes technological changes. And I think that that's a major force in human affairs. But outside of that area, he doesn't really have an interest in, uh, you know, it's not a philosophical interest. It's a very practical interest that he has, you know, and Joe is a marketing, you know, I mean, his Joe Polish, his brain goes uh, you know, incredibly into marketing, but it's a certain focus. And um, I have a philosophical background. You know, I have, you know, I had a very solid um, religious, um, you know, upbringing, Roman Catholic in the 40s and, you know, 50s, uh, back when the church was really serious about things. And they beat you to prove that, uh, you know, I mean, it was really disciplined and, uh, you know, very positive as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and then I, uh, you know, I had four years at what's called the Great Books, uh, the Great Books College, St. John's, uh, which all you do is study the great books of the Western world for uh, for four years and talk. You know, you start with Plato and you end up with Einstein. It's chronological. And so I got a real feel for where ideas come from and when people talk about having a new idea uh, I can check back over like 2,500 years of discussion of ideas and I said nah I've seen that one before I've seen that one before that's you know that's a you know, little bit of Plato a little bit of St. Augustine you know a little bit of Descartes you know, and everything else but yours was fresh it was a fresh idea. I'd never, I'd never come across this idea before, and you know, all the thinkers, nobody had this idea. And I think it's partially, it's, it's a function of who you are and the fact that you're alive at this time, when we have for the first time global communications, which we, you know, didn't have when I was born, you know. So this is something that's transpired in the last 30 or 40 years. And you're, you're born at a particular, you know. They always say, be the person who's born at the right time and the right place with the right idea and i think that you qualify on all three so what made you want to do a and i'm going to make a comment on that in, in a second in terms of what i think makes this possible and what i think is distinctive and isn't distinctive about what i'm trying to yeah. do um but what made you want to do a podcast in particular well i like the podcast form so i have um um you know, the one we're doing here, which I, you know, would be thrilled if it was ongoing in some fashion. But uh, I have one, two, three, four, 
five other podcast series, four of them with partners and one which is just, um, they're shorter podcasts and they're just brief, you know, overviews of some of the concepts in Strategic Coach. And then I tell stories about where my thinkings come from. Like uh, I identified 50 um, what I thought were transformative experiences in my life. And I talked for about five to eight minutes. And people like knowing that stuff. They like knowing where things come from. And uh, people will ask me questions, you know, about my army days and, you know, the Great Books College and, you know, dozens of other experiences have I, have I had. And I, I'm someone who really squeezes maximum learning out of my personal experiences. So, um, uh, you know, my, my greatest learning has come out of daily life. It hasn't come out of reading books, but books are there for a particular reason. They give you frameworks and overviews. But, um, but the podcast, uh, you know, which is new to me. I mean, Joe Polish introduced me to the podcast, and this goes back about five years. And, you know, I was probably predictably kind of stiff and try to over-prepare when I got into podcasts. But I, uh, I have a particular um, way of interacting with people when I'm just with them personally, which is very conversational. And, you know, I... Um, uh, you know, I try to throw the ball back into other people's court, either by talking about what they're doing or my observations about what they're doing or asking them questions about what they're doing. And I noticed that the more I got into this conversational mode, the better the podcast turned out. So I'm in year number five. And I would say, uh, you know, Eleonora is sitting beside me and she sets all this up for me but i would say probably in any quarter i probably do 15 to 20 podcasts and then there's a lot of individuals where i'm just a one one episode guest and i love those because i'm introduced to networks of anywhere from you know 200 people to 20,000 people just by talking for an hour and it's it's uh, you know it's it's a creature, you know, the podcast is just a creature of the Internet and, uh, you know, not available 10 years ago. But now, you know, it's like having your own radio station. I mean, the power hour is like owning your own radio station, your own radio program, you know. And So let me I want to tell the listeners what excited me about the idea, because it was one of these things, as I indicated before, that at the beginning I was. It was in the category of, yeah, this this could be interesting. And then in three hours, I was just, my mind was just racing and I and I just had this vision for what it could be. And and I really started understanding what Dan was saying in terms of human flourishing as this idea that could be pursued for for 25 years, because from one perspective, I mean, first of all, the term human flourishing is not my invention. It's a term that's used in philosophy. It's a, neither human nor flourishing is obviously invented by me. You know, people have different uses of it. Uh, I think, um, and in terms of my own particular understanding of human flourishing is, you know, overwhelmingly uh, informed by Ayn Rand. So I, I don't even think that in terms of, I have certain of my own ideas on exactly what it consists of. Um, and, and I think those ideas will be part of the podcast and be very important to emphasize and to contrast with people who have, I think, very wrong views of human flourishing that, that ultimately don't lead to flourishing. But I think that a lot of what's distinctive about what I do with human flourishing is, is how I use it as a guiding principle and an integrating concept for just about any area of life. So I feel like when you, when any issue comes up, 
my mind just loves to organize the whole field uh, with human flourishing as the standard of value and to see every every piece of information as a means to that end to formulate every principle as a means to that end to to deal with any applied situation as a means to that end. And so I, what I really think of it as, as a human flourishing framework, I have a certain way of thinking and it's certainly not all originated by me. I, I like to steal as much as I can from other people, but it's really a framework of organizing knowledge around the principle of human flourishing. And since I was in my early twenties, I realized I've just had this conviction that if you could organize knowledge better, that would be the highest leverage. Like there's a, it's always good to get new knowledge, but if you don't know how to apply knowledge, if you don't know how to organize it, what was the use of getting it in the first place? It's not really knowledge. And when I read different things, when I see different things, the thing that irks me is the, the all, knowledge isn't organized in a way that's going to be useful. It's not clear enough. It's not purposeful enough. It's, it's not really serving human flourishing. And I had accomplished a lot, I think, in the realm of energy in particular with using human flourishing as a standard of value and organizing our thinking about energy and environmental issues. And I have a lot of new material which will come out, you know, in short order about how to do that more broadly with technology. Uh, but I've always been interested in doing it <clears throat> across the board in other fields, including fields that I don't have time to become a world expert in. And so what intrigued me about the idea of a podcast is we could have on subject experts from different fields and bring this framework to them and help elicit from them really clear principles and really clear connections of their field to human flourishing that don't yet exist. And so we started, we had this conversation, I started getting this clear in my mind of, oh, I could help serve this integrator role. Uh, and that would be really fun. And that would just be like a series, I would, I could have those conversations every day. Right. If I could just talk to a smart person and ask them how their things fit together and try to help organize it in my mind and they'd give me new information. You know, I, I would never get tired of that. I never get tired of that. That's really a core thing that motivates me uh, and energizes me more than anything else, which goes to Dan's concept of unique ability, which we'll talk about on a future episode. Um, so this idea of a human flourishing framework and then having a human flourishing podcast where uh, I could and Dan could talk to uh, among ourselves about our own areas of expertise, entrepreneurship, uh, technology, environment, uh, but also talk to other clear thinkers and just then get for ourselves and for our listeners a, a level of, of precise and useful knowledge that simply doesn't exist. Uh, I just think that would be an amazing thing. And a podcast is a great means of developing that because it 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 has a certain level of precision, but it also has a certain exploratory nature where you're not writing the treatise, you're not writing the manifesto. And what that enables us to do is have a good discussion for you to have some takeaways and the format will maximize takeaways. But also six months later for both us and the guests to say, oh, I just figured out something new about that. I figured out something new about that without having to say, write a new manifesto on finance where but we can interview someone who's really brilliant on finance and get a lot of quick insights and then over time hopefully mm -hmm. their thinking will be reshaped and our thinking will be uh, reshaped so that's that's my uh that was the vision that i had you know a couple mm -hmm. hours after that conversation i really felt like oh wow this is this would really be the perfect thing for me to do what i i love to do most and and i think i do best which is organize information 
I like to think of it as, you know, I, I like repurposing, mm -hmm. refining and reorganizing information or knowledge. And, you know, we could do that with working with a lot of smart people, which is another passion of mine. So any thoughts on that, Dan? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I want to go back to the marketplace validity of um, what you're doing, because um, uh my, my belief is that um, something that is uh, increasingly accepted and utilized in the marketplace uh, is showing the best kind of reality, um, you know, and, uh, you know, it's uh, like I have this ongoing discussion. Um, I'm a big sports fan and people, you know, some of the salaries, you know, I mean, you've got salaries where for you know six or seven years now they're getting paid a quarter billion dollars and people said well no athletes worth that and i says of course they are somebody wrote the check <laughs> i said to that person they're worth uh, what they wrote the check and they said yeah but they'll be disappointed and i said well that's their problem it's not your problem and i said maybe they'll do it once and they won't do it a second time but on the other hand maybe they'll do it once and you know it uh, it uh, it's a real Pay paydays. So I'm a, a real great believer in the testing of things in the actual marketplace. First of all, you have to get people's attention. Um, automatically, your message has to be about them, not you. You know, in other words, that uh, if you want them to get interested in your idea, then you better be interested in them. That you have to make a connection, and I think it's why a lot of people don't understand the marketplace is that the greatest skill in the marketplace is actually to get yourself out of your own head, go over to the other side of the table and see things through another person's point of view and saying, okay, so my idea, how is it actually given what this person, how they look at reality and how they're looking at the future? How, do you, how, how, how is my idea of human flourishing uh, meaningful to them in terms of what they're doing? And that really, really makes... That process of continually making the idea more useful to other people who already have great expertise in other areas. And you can, you know, let's say it's technology and let's say it's artificial intelligence. And I said, okay, let's look at artificial intelligence from the standpoint of human, uh, human flourishing. Well, the first thing you have to do is get over on the other side of the discussion and actually see how the other person who's got this, you know, this unique framework on artificial intelligence, how are they actually looking at the world, and what is their position in that world on the unique value of human beings? And the answer is, uh, they either see it as, you know, in very positive terms that human beings are going to be really be able to expand their abilities to flourish as a result of artificial intelligence, or they're saying they have an, a fundamental attitude, well, I just see dis human beings disappearing. Well, that's not human flourishing, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, so you can have a discussion on that basis and, you know, and uh, it's, uh, and, you know, ultim ultimately everybody comes down that it's, it's for life or it's for death. You know, I mean, uh, all moral decisions are, you know, moral distinctions actually come down that you're basically very, uh, optimistic or you're very pessimistic you know you're you see humanity as a uh, uh, you know kind of 
this amazing creation, or you see humanity as now a fundamental problem for something that you think is more real. So my sense is by this interviewing and bringing in experts uh, from other fields, and you could almost do it randomly, you wouldn't even have to be all that selective about it, just that they're smart and they're, they've got some original thoughts in their area, and you, you just test out your idea. Does it test here? Does it test here? Does it test here? Does it get stronger? And that's how you grow an idea. An idea needs lots of challenge. Ideas need tremendous amounts of challenges. You know, they need resistance training. I mean, muscle, uh, uh, ideas have to have muscles. You know, they, uh, uh, you know, and uh, I remember Darwin, a great story about Darwin. Darwin was a long time in developing the whole notion that we now call natural selection, evolution. And he, he was only prompted into action because somebody in another part of the world was developing almost uh, Wallace, who was, you know, um, 12,000 miles away from Britain. And he was developing almost a, you know, a very, very similar theory of natural selection. So uh, Darwin was very prompted to go into action and get everything printed. I, he might never have printed it if he didn't have the possible that someone was going to up, up, one up him. <laughs> But from the point he brought it out, every time somebody made an objection, he wrote the objection down on a file card, and he had like, uh, you know, they have in the libraries the file cards. And he had whole cabinets of these of objections, and he would just randomly pull, pull out an objection and said, how would I think about this objection? You know, what's the validity of the objection? Uh, what does it reveal that I haven't explained very well? And to me, that is extraordinary intellectual honesty. That that you're willing to entertain that somebody else may be seeing a weakness that you're not seeing. Uh, someone else is seeing a deficiency that you're not seeing. And uh, I think it's the ultimate form of courage because I think that we invest more of ourselves in... Uh, ideas than we do in almost anything else. We have a certain idea of how things work, and uh, we've spent a lot of time investing in it, and to be willing to possibly be told that, you know, you're kind of on a wrong track here takes a tremendous amount of courage, and I admire that courage. Yeah, it's one of the exciting things about doing a podcast is just, is not knowing how things will evolve, where the challenges will emerge. Uh, it's been a long time since it's really bothered me to have anything like that, in part because internally, I'm always doing that to myself. I mean, I'm always arguing with myself or always have this clarity meter of, well, you're not really clear on this. And what exactly does this mean? And you didn't really answer that. And so it's it's a, someone's doing me a favor if they come up with something new that I hadn't uh, thought of. But it's not like I have this internal view that everything I have developed is pristine or complete. It's this constant state of evolution. So it's the only thing I've found after a while is that if you, once you deal with critics past a certain point, they outlive their usefulness because the, the ones that stick around are just, just violating the core right framework. And so to find what's exciting and part about dealing with new realms besides energy is there'll be all sorts of interesting questions of application, all sorts of things that I start out wrong about. Uh, whereas, honestly, in energy, in terms of framework, it's been a while since I've been 
I mean, it's not like you know Bill McKibben is going to really tell me that I'm I'm wrong in a fundamental way. I mean, he can he can say I devalue humans and it's wrong to value humans, but say you know how does this apply to even entrepreneurship? It'll be really fun to um, yeah. to discuss. So um, yeah, so currently titled Human Flourishing Podcast. So I think uh, is it is it safe to say we're we're a go for that? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's great, you know, and. Uh... You know, and, you know, I want to make uh, things clear to everybody who's listening. Uh, uh, you know, um, Alex says, you know, he borrowed the idea from somewhere, uh, somewhere else. But the, none of the other people who had the idea were confident enough to build a money-making uh, enterprise around it. So they lose. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, you you mentioned, he says, you know, well, this is just common knowledge inside universities. But I says, yeah, but uh, nobody's really cares, you know, you know, how they're spending their time in the university. They know something goes on there, but most people couldn't care less. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, one of the most fundamental books that uh, really changed certainly changed uh, life in the uh, uh, Great Britain and certainly changed life in the United States was The Wealth of Nations, which is, you know, uh, was written on commission by Adam Smith, and he was writing it as a defense of um, free trading in Edinburgh in the, you know, in the 1770s as opposed to mercantilism where, you know, the government was exerting uh, prejudicial control over who got to trade and who didn't get to trade. And and he was just saying that if you would release these uh, regulations and just allow things to find their natural course, every, everybody would benefit from it. And, uh, and he was a tax collector. That's how he earned his money. He was a tariff royalty collector, so he, under, he understood what government was doing. But he was paid on commission for this book, and, uh, and then he has another book which we can talk about in the future because that's his moral book. And, yeah, that, uh, wait, that. Not, very few, very few people know his other book. But on his tombstone, I saw his tombstone. He's actually married, buried in Glasgow, and on his tombstone, it's Adam Smith's such and such a year to such and such a year, the author of the theory of moral sentiments. So on his tombstone, I don't know if. He had a say of what was going to be, um, you know, inscribed there, but uh, he didn't. He didn't put wealth of nations. It was the theory of moral sentiments because he was a moral philosopher. He wasn't an economist. Well, I, I like wealth of nations a lot more for reasons we yeah. can discuss sometime. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's easier to bet on the opening premise of wealth of nations than it is on the. The one, uh, you know, I, I just want to talk about ideas. Another idea uh, that, uh, you know, along with hu human flourishing that uh, continues to um, assert its influence around the planet is the opening of the American Declaration of Independence, that these things were ordained for the purpose of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And um, that's sort of the big idea with the, the American experiment, if you want to call it an experiment, uh, and that is that you go along too far and start violating life, 
start violating liberty and start uh, getting in the way of pursuit of happiness. And there are severe political repercussions in the American system for the people who are trying to restrain this. And uh, uh, and nobody talked about that. Nobody talked about that in the last election. But I think very fundamentally that was in play is that when you get government just interfering too much in people's personal and commercial lives, uh, there's severe consequences to uh, for fooling around. And in Canada, you know, if you want to know the difference between Canada and the United States, so the founding document for Canada is called the British North American Act. It's 1867. And this is essentially when Canada is no longer a colony of Great Britain. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's got a different status. And it, these things are ordained for the purpose of peace, order, and good government. There's a vast difference between life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and peace, order, and good government. And this is why all the really talented Canadian people, having grown up in peace, order, and good government, moved to the United States so that they can start experiencing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, and this will all come back full circle to our discussions of human flourishing, because one yeah. of the first questions is, what is that? And... You know, I have a very. I think we both have a very individual conception. I mean, human beings are individuals, and we want yeah. individuals to flourish. And when people dehumanize individuals by pretending that they're all part of the government or that they're all some amorphous collective, they do not. They do not flourish, and yeah. you know, they do the opposite of, of flourish. And uh, the fundamental elements of flourishing are, are compromised or destroyed. So it's, it's very fortunate uh, in, in so many ways that that the U.S. was founded when it was with the ideas in the prevalent ideas that were prevalent at the time. And it's it's fortunate that we have that uh, as a foundation to look at intellectually, but also that we have a whole culture that's developed for hundreds of years where in individual human flourishing was actually valued in, in many ways. It would be very hard to imagine that from scratch before it had existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, um, um, what a uh, perfect storm usually means something bad, but that was kind of like a perfect positive storm. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that's really interesting, and it's just one of those little things that I note, that if you take the what are considered the five or six major founding fathers of the United States, uh, you know, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, Adams, um, um, who else? Maybe those are the uh, five. five. Um, the average lifespan in, in uh, you know, around 1800 was just a little bit under 30 years old. And a lot of that is because of infant mortality, you know, and then, you know, uh, various diseases that were not, um, you know, taken care of. And there was, you know, they were uh, in the states, you know, I mean, that you were dealing with frontier issues still in, in 1800. But the youngest of the founding fathers lived to, uh, I think, uh, 68. Uh, the oldest was 92, too, but the majority of them were in their 80s. And uh, and I think the reason was that uh, they were very, very blessed by knowing that they 
they were embarking on a project that had never been offered to any other group of people on the planet. They could literally create from scratch, um, you know, using amazing amounts of knowledge that had come over from the best of the um, uh, English experience and uh, had, you know, just an unlimited optimism about the future and uh, tremendous skills. I mean, they were very gifted human beings and uh, they had the habits of, uh, they had the habits of independence. They had the habits of thing. And it all came together in a very short period of time. And, you know, the country was three, just a little bit more than three million in, in, uh, in the year 1800. And it's 320 million now. And it's just just a phenomenal. I mean, I've been out of the States for 45 years as far as living. And the, the longer I'm out, the more extraordinary the, the whole American experience. And I think that there's something about human flourishing that uh, you think about this more if you're, you grew up in an American context than if you grew up somewhere else. Definitely. All right. Well, we are well past the power hour, so uh, <laughs> we should wrap up. And the closing of the show, Dan, I'll, I'll give all the information about Strategic Coach so everyone can sign up and aspire to be a, a 10Xer. Or, um, any, any quick final thoughts you want to leave people with? No, and I'm, uh, I just want to say that um, uh, the beauty of what we're doing with this particular topic and the format that we're doing it is that uh, most of what's transpired in the last hour, uh, I didn't know it was coming, uh, either from your side or from my side. And that's the beautiful part about it, is that there's a discussion that actually gets created. And, uh, you know, and I know you had notes that you wanted to make sure that you hit upon, but I don't think we talked about them in the way that you thought that they were going to be talked about. And I think that's the beauty of this experiment is that uh, things are actually getting created uh, as as the process goes on. So that's that's a beautiful thing. And that's yeah. human for me. That's human flourishing. Yeah, well, as you'll, as I'll, I'll talk about once we launch the actual podcast. I have I have certain what I think will be format innovations, ways of asking questions that I think will be helpful. But it's you know structure the right kind of structure liberates and the wrong kind of structure constrains. So hopefully, we'll, we'll I mean I know I know ultimately we'll have a structure that that uh, will lead to the best possible thinking, but that will mean exposing us to ideas of our own and of others that we had no idea were coming before the show. So looking forward to that, Dan, it was great to have you on Power Hour. Uh, I look forward to hearing from uh, Babs, your wife, if she likes this particular episode. Yeah, well, uh, she'll be straightforward with you. <laughs> uh, no doubt. Okay, well, we'll talk yeah. to you soon. Thank you, Alex. Thanks again to Dan for being on the show. I hope I got you excited. I hope he got you excited. If we weren't able to during that discussion, I don't know what else I can say. I pretty much expressed uh, the core reasons for my excitement. So I will just say once again that I'm excited. And if you want to be on the list, make sure to go to humanflourishingmovement.com. And if you want more information about Strategic Coach, go to strategiccoach.com. 
All right, we'll do the usual wrap up. If you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, I'm particularly interested in questions and comments about this week's topic. You can email me at support at industrialprogress.net. That will go both to me and to my assistant, increasing dramatically the probability that you'll get a response at some point. Uh, So support at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to sign up for the mailing list. That's where all the information is always distributed and you're always kept up to date on a weekly basis without intrusiveness. That's at industrialprogress.com. Just plug in your email to be on the newsletter. And then, of course, follow us on social media. There's the Twitter Alex Epstein account, the Facebook Alex Epstein account. There's also the I Love Nuclear account. um, And there's the same. So there's the same for Facebook and for Twitter. And there's a Center for Industrial Progress account. Probably at some point we'll add a Human Flourishing account. Right now, the most, the biggest ones that that we're focused on are the Alex Epstein Twitter, which has over 40,000 followers, and the Alex Epstein Facebook fan page. Both of those are verified now, which enables me to reach a lot more people uh, and uh, is a sign of the ideas reaching a broader and broader audience. All right. Well, I usually say next time we'll be back with another great guest, another great topic. That's true of Power Hour, but it's also true of the Human Flourishing Podcast. Expect that in late January and then expect that weekly. Uh, it's it's going to be a whole new type of podcast. I'm going to be taking everything I've learned from Power Hour everything I've learned from my thinking in the last 16 years. And it's it's designed to be a whole new type of intellectual experience. I think we'll get there pretty early. I think from the beginning, you'll get a tremendous amount of value. And, and once we get started, uh, I want you to be as healthily addicted to it as a human being can be addicted to anything. All right. I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.